Can you all hear me okay? I'm not used to holding a mic, so I might drop it occasionally, but I think that's a good sign. Drop the mic, isn't it? You're supposed to do that? Uh, also, you'll notice that I'm a, a boomer. That's why I brought my boomer Bible instead of uh, using whatever Brandon uses. I don't know what that is. But I'm pleased to be with you again. It's been a few years, uh, pre-COVID, I think, at least, and maybe even before that. Uh, but I've been here a couple of times and always enjoy coming here. I wonder, I, I always like to ask the question if there are any Scandinavians left. All right, look at that. Well, we're, we're kinsmen. I'm from Sweden. So, uh, well, I shouldn't have said that. I should have said I'm Norwegian, right? <laughs> but I like to tell people that I'm Scandinavian at least, and then that's the good news. The bad news is that I'm, is that I'm Swedish. Uh, but I enjoy being with you. I have a, a task before me for the next uh, half hour or so. I need to tell you a little bit about Chosen People Ministries. That's one reason that I'm here. Uh, the other thing that we need to do is to see the connection between Hanukkah and Christmas, which is uh, always an interesting topic for me. So I'm delighted that Brandon asked me to speak on that topic, uh, to see the connection that we see between the Jewish people and the uh, believers, the Christians of today. And uh, in, in part, that includes a lot of history. So you'll bear with me when I put on my professor's hat and talk a little bit about the history behind Hanukkah. I think it will be helpful for you to understand what has happened as God has continually delivered the Jewish people throughout the ages, and Hanukkah was one of those times. So that's what I want to do with you today. Um, the other thing is that the only place that Hanukkah is mentioned in the New Testament is in John chapter 10. So the passage that we'll look at is John 10 uh, by the time uh, we get there. Uh, but I wanted to uh, begin with the commercial announcement, tell you what I do and uh, what Chosen People Ministries is all about. Uh, since 1894, there has been a, a group of people in New York and now all around the world that has faithfully and hopefully in a very cogent and sensitive way, presented the good news of Jesus the Messiah to the Jewish people in particular. And in so doing, we've been able to reach many, many Gentiles as well, non-Jews, because the message is so uh, clear that Jesus came as the suffering servant to save the nation of Israel. And we, by extension, have been as Gentiles, I'm Gentile, have been grafted into that tree, that promise, that covenant, and so we enjoy uh, the relationship that God began with Israel. And we like to speak about the centrality of the people of Israel throughout the ages as well. So I think, and uh, I, I don't mean to, um, to um, oh, elim uh, minimize in any way uh, the other approaches to the faith, but I really uh, believe that God had a, a special place in His heart for the Jewish people throughout the ages, and he still has a, a special place in his heart for the Jews today. So I hope that you'll be praying, and I know this congregation is well aware of, uh, of the future and of uh, eschatology and how Israel will play a part in that as well. So I, I know and I pray that you're all praying for the nation of Israel, especially at a time like this when there has been uh, such a travesty uh, uh, perpetrated against the nation on October the 7th. So keep praying. Keep praying that God's will will be done, 
that uh, Jewish people will come to faith as a result of this tragedy, and also pray that the Palestinian people who do not know the Lord would come to trust in Him, uh, again, the Jewish Messiah. So what are we about? Uh, I am the director of what is called the Feinberg Center for Messianic uh, Jewish Studies. And it's located in Brooklyn, right down on Coney Island Avenue. That's where our building is. And uh, if you're ever in the area, you should stop by and visit. We hold classes. We have about 20 students now. And we have had about 30 graduates over the years that we've been doing the program. It's a Master's of Divinity in conjunction with Biola University on the West Coast. So all the way uh, into California is where we have our accreditation. And yet we have the, the program here in Brooklyn. Uh, this is a brochure. I think you probably received one. One of the reasons that we go on these speaking uh, ju uh, junkets is that I need to raise support for my family. And so we are, as support-raised missionaries, also uh, leading the Feinberg Academic Program. All of our professors are support-raised missionaries. That means they raise their own support, and then we pass on those savings uh, to the students who can't afford a seminary education. So we deeply discount uh, what the, we charge the students. So if you would consider uh, uh, supporting Linda and me or reading more about what we do, I'd love to have the back portion of this uh, brochure, and you can hand it to me uh, when you leave. And I'll make sure that you get on our mailing list, you know, those proverbial mailing lists that you never can get off of. <laughs> but anyway, uh, we appreciate the, uh, the, um, the, the, the role that uh, our supporters have played over the years because we would not be able to offer the kind of education uh, nor the deep discount for the education that we can now. So, well, let's get into the text itself after I pray for God's uh, help in the hearer and in the speaker. Would you pray with me? Our gracious Father, we uh, are thankful that you are the sovereign Lord. I'm thankful, Father, that uh, if Brandon had to be ill, that today was the day where a scheduled speaker was already coming. Pray you'll bring him back to good, strong health. I thank you for him and for the leadership that he provides here at this congregation and for all the other leaders as well. Lord, we're asking you that today you would bless us as we seek to serve you. I pray that those who are here would come away with a greater understanding of light and the shepherd and the role that we are to play in this dark, dark world. And so, Lord, we uh, pray that uh, there would be a special uh, anointing of your Spirit as, uh, as we teach and as we hear, so that the two would come together in a way that would please you. I uh, bless this group. Thank you for their faithfulness over the years. Thank you for their love of the Word, for their love of the Jewish people. And I ask you, Lord, that you'll bless our time together. I pray it uh, in Yeshua's name, Jesus' name. What comes to mind when you think about uh, light? And when you think about, um, oh, I don't know, an explosion of light, uh, usually um, we think of our favorite times in life when we've seen that. Probably fireworks is a, a good thing. If you've gone to any uh, major uh, sport event and they show fireworks, that's a, always a pleasant thing. Uh, maybe you're one who likes lightning that comes from the sky, that bolt of lightning that is just so spectacular or the sheet of lightning that uh, lightens up the sky. 
I spent 10 years in Lubbock, Texas, and uh, it's flat there. Anybody been to Lubbock, Texas? Yeah, you get excited when you see a trash barrel. There's nothing else around. <laughs> Mesquite bushes, maybe. But anyway, there's nothing between the North Pole and Lubbock, Texas, but a barbed wire fence, they say. So the weather comes down, and uh, storms are always there. And these sheet lightnings that light up the sky, um, that's a spectacular event. And we always appreciated that as we were living in that area. Um, Maybe you like the special effects in a movie where things are blown up. Uh, I'm not a fan of that kind of thing, but perhaps you are. But it's that explosion of light. It's light that makes the big difference. I was regretting the fact that it was so dark coming over here today. I thought, oh, we should have a shiny day. I'm going to talk about light. But uh, it wasn't. It was kind of dreary, right? But the light breaks through and the sun shines again, and uh, it's, uh, it's, it's a beautiful thing when we see this kind of light. Well, maybe you think, as uh, most people at this time of year, about uh, Madison Avenue or uh, the uh, Fifth Avenue or the lights in Manhattan, uh, the, uh, the, the glory that seems to be there at night or the houses that are all decorated. Uh, something about light that just lightens the soul, to use a pun. But we appreciate the fact that when we... Uh, are exposed to uh, the opposite of darkness, something good. There's something good about it. I think you would all agree with that idea. So when we think of Christmas, we think of the glory of the Lord shining. We think of the shepherds who are uh, struck with the brilliance of the announcement from the angels, right? And that's why they go to observe the babe in Bethlehem. And we think of the star of Bethlehem, too. I personally believe that was an evidence of the Shekinah glory, or the Shekinah, the, the glory of the Lord, was leading the wise men to that, uh, that home, that stable where Jesus was. Um, I think of Jerusalem. Uh, in the time of Jesus, and in the passage that we'll read in a moment, he's standing at a place where they're celebrating something called the Feast of Lights. And it said that the whole of Jerusalem was lit up by the uh, lights that were there. And uh, you think of the menorahs that are being lit even today in the uh, Jewish homes where one candle is lit each night of uh, Hanukkah, the eight days. And you see it in the, you, you can tell where you are in the week, can't you, when you uh, look at the, the homes where the lights are, are, are lit. So... Um, all of these things bring us to the connection. And when I think of Christmas, I, I think that Jesus invaded human history with the light of the world. In fact, that's what he says. We're looking at a segment of, of Scripture in a moment from John chapter 8 through chapter 10, focusing on the, uh, the, the point where the Jewish people reject Jesus as the good shepherd in chapter 10. But in chapter 8, he stood very boldly at uh, Sukkot, and he said, I am the light of the world. And uh, that was a, an amazing statement for him to make. And then he repeats that in chapter 9. And then he heals the blind man in chapter 9. Do you remember? So there's this, this growing uh, anticipation that he really is the light of the world. 
And that is one of the things that the Jewish people rejected. It was God, Elohim. It was Jehovah who said, let there be light originally. And he was the one that they looked to for the source of light. And what Jesus is doing in John, the entire book of John, is to claim that he is divine. The whole book is about emphasizing his deity. And so when you come to that critical passage in chapters 8 through 10, uh, that's when we see that uh, it, it, it comes, uh, comes to the fore, and he's making this statement that I and the Father are one. I am the good shepherd. Uh, I'm the light of the world. So if you'll turn in your Bibles to John, we can take a look at that. Uh, in John, we have uh, uh, this marvelous presentation of the deity of Messiah. Beginning in verse 22 of John 10, it says, At that time, the feast of dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter, so we're narrowing down the time of year and the particular feast. Now, there are a lot of feasts, you know, in the nation of Israel. Uh, I might have even come to speak on the fall feasts of Israel to talk about all the various things that uh, the Jewish people go through. Uh, we have the spring feasts of Passover and unleavened bread and first fruits. And then we have the Feast of Weeks, which is in the summertime in June. Then there's a gap of time uh, through the summer until the fall feasts kick in. And you know them well because you live in an area that is so Jewish. But you have first uh, the Rosh Hashanah, and then you have Yom Kippur, and then you have Sukkot. All of these feasts that the Jewish people uh, celebrate, and many Jewish Christians in particular... And myself, who's a Gentile who loves the Jewish faith and the Jewish background, we celebrate those feasts as well. But we're very quick to point out the Christological significance, aren't we? So I think you've probably been involved in something like that. So there are a lot of feasts to celebrate. There's also Purim. Purim in March usually is a part of the feast, but it's not listed in the feasts of Leviticus. So we normally consider those to be non-biblical added feasts in honor of, again, the deliverance of the Jewish people in Persia. Remember the story about Mordecai and Esther and Haman? There was that deliverance of the people, and so we have a feast. Uh, I like the, you know, they tried to kill us. Um, we won. Let's eat. <laughs> That's the motto of the Jewish people, it seems. And so they celebrated with the Feast of Purim. The same thing is true at the end of the year. So around Christmas time, the 25th of Chislev, which is the Jewish month, and around our 25th of December, usually they're very close, and uh, we have Hanukkah and Christmas together. But Hanukkah is not the Jewish form of Christian Christmas, and Christmas is certainly not the Jewish form of Hanukkah. They're two separate things, but there are certain commonalities that I think God intended for there to be. But we have all of these feasts, and then we have Hanukkah at the end. Hanukkah means dedication. So when it says here, the Feast of Dedication, that's a pretty good translation. In the Greek, the word is enkaina. It's a simple one word. It only occurs here in the book of John, because this is the only time that the Feast of Dedication is mentioned. And you'll notice that Jesus is there. He's walking around the temple at this particular time. 
Now, that doesn't mean that he was celebrating Hanukkah necessarily, although I think he may have. I think he was uh, very appreciative of the fact that God had preserved the Jews during the time of the Persians. But he was certainly uh, acknowledging it, and he was there where all of the other Jewish uh, leaders and people were, in the same portico, Solomon's portico, where he cleansed the temple. So now he's back in the same place, and they're going to question him. This is the crescendo of their rejection <clears throat> against him. But Hanukkah simply means dedication or rededication. Enkaina means new. It means upon or in, in the new. So renewing is a good way of putting it. And I want to tell you more about the Feast of Dedication, just the background of it, before we read another verse or two in the text. It began during a time when there was a tremendous persecution of the Jewish people. Here's the history lesson, so hang on. I know all of you loved history in school. Uh, I think I'm a weirdo for liking history so much because nobody else seems to. But just a, a broad brush approach to the history. You remember that there was the Persian, uh, which is modern-day Iran, the Persian control in the Persian Empire. And uh, during that time, we have the Esther Mordecai story. But who took over after the Persians? It was the Greeks under Alexander the Great in about 300 BCE, uh, before the uh, Common Era, BC, before Christ. So that was about 300. Now, in 300, he, Alexander, conquered the then-known world, including the Middle East. So everything was under the control of the Greeks, but Alexander died. And he passed on the uh, control of all of the area that he had conquered to four generals in particular. And those four generals were in control of either Greece, that was Cassandra, or Lysimachus was the leader of uh, Turkey, and then Ptolemy was another general. He took care of the um, Egyptian section, but the last one was Seleucus, and he was the Syrian general. So you have four major generals who took over the um, um, Grecian uh, Empire. And it's Seleucus who's controlling Israel at the time who puts tremendous pressure on the Jewish people. In fact, it was clearly an effort to exterminate the Jews, much like Haman had done in Persia. But God was faithful. He returned the people to Israel. Remember, Cyrus allowed the people to go back to Israel and to rebuild a temple. And so they were flourishing once again because of the sovereign protection of God. The same kind of thing happens now under Seleucus. And now we are in about 160 BCE, 65 BCE. And this is when a, a leader named Antiochus Epiphanes, isn't that a wonderful name? Antiochus Epiphanes. Epiphanes means um, appearance. And he felt that he was the appearance of God. He thought he was God incarnate. So you can see there's a, a comparison here. He thought he was God incarnate, and we realized that God incarnate was going to be coming about 200 years later. 
But back in 165 or so, Antiochus Epiphanes required the Jewish people to worship him. He even had a statue of Jupiter, which looked oddly like Antiochus. It looked like him, and he was claiming to be a god that they should worship. Not only that, he he brought um, pigs and swine on the altars in Jerusalem. He made it impossible for Jewish people to practice their own religion. And so this was a tremendous, tremendous blow to the Jewish people. Now, you should also know that this kind of pressure was put on people all around the country. And so in a little town called Modin, there was a family. It was, happened to be a Levitical family. These were priests. And uh, Mattathias was the leader of the band, and Judah, Judah was his son, And the two of them began this uh, guerrilla campaign against the Syrians. It happened at a particular event when one of the high-powered generals came to Modin, and he required uh, Mattathias to worship uh, Antiochus. And he required that on the altar in that city, there was a little altar, and they wanted to offer a swine there. Well, you can tell that that would be very offensive to the Jewish people. So... Mattathias, um, whose name is also Maccabee, which means in Hebrew, the hammer, uh, evidently didn't like to be persuaded so, and he killed the general. He killed his escort, and he started the rebellion called the Maccabean Revolt. And we read about this in uh, the book of Maccabees in the Apocrypha. Uh, It's historically accurate in that it tells about that entire period. So what I want to share with you is simply this. There was a resistance movement against the evil empire that was trying to control them. Well, the Maccabees uh, uh, won, finally. They won a temporary um, success over uh, Israel, and they came back, and guessed the first thing that they did was what? They rededicated that temple. They made it new again. Uh, They uh, got rid of the uh, swine blood. They got rid of the desecration of the temple. They tore down the uh, statue. And they reestablished the worship of God. The miracle that is legendary, I don't think it's true, but it's a miracle that says that the lampstand in the temple had only one cruise of oil And that one cruise of oil was used to light the menorah first day. But guess what? Every succeeding day, the lights were lit with only one amount of oil that would be able to sustain it. So it's considered to be the miracle of Hanukkah. And it's the miracle of lights. It's the festival of lights. And so you have all of this light that becomes part of the worship, and uh, you'll see that in synagogues around the country today. So that's um, the Feast of Dedication, and I like to compare it to other things throughout history. Um, for example, it celebrated the deliverance of the Jewish people. You know, after years of slavery in Egypt, long before this, there was the Exodus. That was a celebration. Uh, That was Passover. That was a celebration of God's deliverance. After years of slavery in Babylon, there was a return 
to Israel. You remember that. That's back in 400 BCE. And then after years of slavery in Israel, Hanukkah takes place in 165 BCE. I'd like to compare it to after years of slavery in Germany, modern Israel came to be in 1948. And it was on this 25th of Kislev that you have the celebration of Hanukkah that has continued to this day. I think that we need to celebrate Jesus as the one who's brought deliverance to us and to the Jewish people. Well, I think I've covered the history of the history of Hanukkah well enough, but one thing I wanted to share with you, especially because I'm at a Lutheran Brethren Assembly, uh, one of your great scholars, well, do any of you know the history of uh, Gleason Archer? No, maybe, no. Uh, he was from the Lutheran Brethren. He was a great Old Testament scholar, and he wrote a lot of things on Daniel. And he pointed out very strongly this, this prophetic truth. I want you to just listen to the passage. It's Daniel 11, 2 through 4, in case you're taking notes. And it's one of the times where we see that Daniel was predicting what would happen in the future. When he, that's the king of Persia, has become strong, Daniel says, through his riches, he will stir up all against the kingdom of Greece. Persia, then Greece. And then a mighty king shall arise in Greece who shall rule with great domination and do as he pleases. And as soon as he has risen, his kingdom shall be broken and divided toward the four winds of heaven. Four winds of heaven. Not his personal posterity, nor according to the authority with which he ruled. For his kingdom shall be plucked up, that is, Persia shall be plucked up, and go to others besides these. So it was not his children who inherited, but those four generals. The four winds. Well, I, I think it's obvious to us anyway that that is a reference to what happened in history hundreds of years after Daniel prophesied that. So Alexander's children didn't inherit the empire, but those four leaders that I mentioned before did. How accurate is God's word? It's just amazing to me. Well, uh, as I said, the Greek religion held sway that is pantheism. It was a religion that didn't worship the one true God. And I want to share this with you. What did it bring to Israel? Think about America today. What has our pagan, our non-believing non world, our society brought to us today? Well, back then there was a pagan philosophy. There was godless morality, or immorality, I should say. But they had many gods, plenty of gods, but no morality to go with it. There was a secular humanism with man at the center. Now, can you imagine a better description of our world today? The me world, it's, uh, you know, man at the center, not God. Uh, there was an assimilation as well between the people of God and those who do not know God. I think that's one of the saddest things that we see, those of us who are fighting fundamentalists or who believe the Bible or who have that kind of conservative background, and I'm including all of you, I hope, uh, we, we, we shudder at the fact that there's so much compromise between those who call themselves Christians and the pagan society that we live in today. 
Well, there was Greek persecution, as I said, along with it. It was forced upon the Jews, and it's the continuing attitude of our day. What is that persecution? Well, the Greeks ridiculed the people of God, ridicule of the God of Israel, and there is ridicule of Christians today. There was the hatred of the Jewish people, and there is hatred of the Christians in the world today. The two most persecuted people, it seems, in the world are the Jews and the Christians, the persecuted church. If you haven't studied that, you should. That seems to be right in, in tune with, with Scripture. Well, uh, I think I told you all I need to tell you about the Maccabean Re- Revolt. That's the, that is the, um, the history part of what we want to do. But now I want you to take a look once again at the text that's before us. I have a few minutes to develop this. At the the time of the feast, it was in the winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple. I'm in verse 23 now. Uh, In the portico of Solomon, the Jews, that is the Jewish opponents to Jesus, not his Jewish followers, you understand, it's an in-house. This is not an anti-Semitic passage. It was an in-house squabble. But the Jews who opposed him, the leadership, gathered around him. The word means encircled him. It's like they were pressing upon him. Remember, these are the same ones who were affected by the cleansing of the temple earlier. And they were saying to him, how long will you keep us in suspense? Literally, it says, when will you release our spirit? That's a way of saying, tell us already. We're anticipating what you, who you really are. Are you the Christ? Are you the Messiah? And that's their question. If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Be bold about it. Uh, don't keep us in suspense any longer. I love the response of Jesus. He answered them and said, I told you. You don't believe. The works that I do in my Father's name, these testify of me. So always remember the focus on the life of Christ is his words and his works. And so in his words and in his works, he proclaimed to be the Messiah. Now we could go back through, we could go back through um, the, the, the scriptures and point out all of those works and words that he used. But what we have here is we have a, a, a group of leaders who simply would not believe. They would reject him. And that's what he says. This is an interesting part that seems to talk about the role of God in this whole thing. He says, you don't believe me, but you do not believe because you're not of my sheep. Because my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. What is Jesus saying at this point? He's saying that there are those who get it, And in line with the Feast of Dedication, it's almost like they are ones who are dedicated to the Lord, and there are those who are simply not dedicated. And he says, you're not of the flock. You're not of my sheep. Look around you in all of Brooklyn and think seriously about this. What is the remnant today, as far as the church is concerned? I think the remnant of the Jewish people are those who believe in Jesus. But the remnant, those who are true believers in Jesus Christ, in the church all around Brooklyn, we are such a small sliver of humanity. Uh, 
And I think it's important for us to realize that because God is faithful. But why do you believe? You believe because he's touched your heart. He's whispered in your ear. He's convinced you that he is truly the Messiah, and he's the Son of God. He's the Savior of the world. He's the suffering servant of the Old Testament. So that's why you are where you are. That's why you are a believer. It's not because of what you've done. You're not so great. Neither am I. We're sinners saved by grace. That's all. But God is the one who touches us, and he's doing it here. He's saying it here. You don't believe because you're not of my sheep. My sheep hear my voice. I know them, and they follow me. And I give them, notice it's a gift, I give them eternal life, and they'll never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me, notice he's, he's equating himself and his Father. His Father is the one who is, is part of this, uh, this uh, transaction. My Father has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. And here's that statement. I and the Father are one. They're one in essence, different in person, but one in essence. Now that brings us to the end of the passage, and I know I haven't done a great deal of, spent a great deal of time developing the passage itself. But what I want you to see is that this presents the final straw for the Jewish people. It's the same thing that happened in Matthew, uh, 20, uh, Matthew uh, 12, excuse me, 41, if you are taking notes. You can go back and see that there was a turning point when God, Jesus, was, was reaching out to the Jewish people, reaching out to the Jewish people, and then there came a point in time where he turned away from his preaching and he started discipling his, his, uh, his disciples. And from this, we go into the teaching that Jesus gave his disciples in particular. However, it does not mean that he has forgotten the Jews. Some people uh, take this as uh, an indication that, well, he's turned away from Israel and he's, he's gone now to uh, the Gentiles. No, he's gone to the Jewish people who respond, to his sheep. It's just that he has another flock that is outside the house of Israel, and that's uh, probably all of us. Are any of you Jewish? You can tell me afterwards. I would love to talk to you if you are. Well, I think um, that probably uh, tells us what we need to know about this passage and the connection between Hanukkah and, um, and Christmas. So let me close with just a few more thoughts. One is, I want to underscore the fact that there have always been those who have wanted to exterminate the Jewish people. I'm not getting political here, I'm getting biblical. Think about before the first advent, there was Haman who wanted to destroy the Jewish people because the Messiah would come. There was Herod who killed all the babies in Jerusalem for fear that the king would be there. And in the second, uh, to, to prevent the second advent, there's a Hitler who clearly wanted to provide the final solution. And there is a Hamas today. And there is a the Hitler, uh, the, 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 the Houthis today. Uh, the list goes on and on. And I think we, as Bible-believing Christians, believe that Jesus is coming back. And when he comes back, he's coming back to a, an entity that can be identified 
and that entity will be the Jewish people, and they will call upon him whom they've pierced. And they will say, Baruch haba b'shem Adonai, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. How long will it be before that happens? I don't know. And neither do any of us here. He said, don't set the dates. But I think you can see the point that I'm trying to make here is that there will always be that kind of objection. There always will be that resistance. There will be resistance to you as well. I began with uh, the idea of light and how wonderful it is. And let me close with um, just a comment on how desperate the situation when we don't have any light. <laughs> you know what it's like to have a, an electric uh, um, brownout or a blackout. All of a sudden, you lose all of the light and electricity in your home. You grope around, try to find a candle or a, a lantern or something in order to see what's before you. But still, you have a little dim light that you can see from the stars and the moon. Have you ever been to a cave, uh, one of the Monmouth Caverns or someplace where you, you go down and then they turn the lights off? Have, have any of you been there? And then, and then they say, hold your hand in front of your face. So you do, but there's nothing there. You can't see a thing. Well, that's the kind of thing that darkness can do. So a power outage produces fear. A cave experience shows you how complete and thick and utter the darkness can be. There is a thing called outer darkness in the Bible. It's the place, the abode of those who've rejected the grace of God. There were the dark ages in the Middle Ages where nothing seemed to be happening. But I want to suggest to you that we, we are not only to receive the light of Hanukkah and Christmas, the glory of God. We are to be the light. And that takes us to the world around us. Uh, you know that you're supposed to be the light of the world, and you're not supposed to hide your light under a bushel basket, right? That's what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount. You also know that there's the dawn that is coming, and that dawn that is coming reflects the, uh, the light that, that comes. I, I love early morning. I get up before dawn almost every uh, day, and uh, I love to watch the sun come in um, because it's a gradual, gradual lightning, and then all of a sudden, it just seems to burst out, and it's bright light. Not today, but on other days. We know that believers are to be the light of the world, and in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 8, we're told that we are to uh, walk as children of the light. So let's walk in the light with Jesus, walk as the children of light, and rejoice in the fact that he's called us to do such a thing. Uh, for him. We're his representatives. We shine the light. Uh, we're supposed to be the ones who give the revelation, the illumination of God uh, to a world that needs to hear. So I think that's part of the message for this season, isn't it? When you see the Hanukkah lights or the Christmas lights, please think about that. Think about dispelling the darkness, and God is uh, working through us to do that. Okay? It's time for me to quit. So let's pray. Gracious Father, we are so thankful for the shining light who is the Messiah. We are thankful, Lord, that uh, you have uh, pierced the darkness with your Son.
And we are so thankful that we, uh, although we can't generate that light, we can reflect the light. Help us to do that. Help us to live in a way that is uh, honorable, live as um, people of righteousness so they would see the light of the gospel in us. And then help us to speak up. Help us to give, give us a voice, we pray. Uh, we know, Father, that uh, not all are of your flock, not all are your sheep, not all hear, not all listen, but we pray that we would. We pray that you would give us the ability to hear your voice, respond to your commands, follow you because you know us and we know you. Anido di velodi di. I'm my beloved's and my beloved is mine. So Father, help us to walk closely with you through your Lord, through the Lord, and be a good representative of him. This is our prayer and we pray it in the name of Messiah. Amen.